The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel podcast, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and to help them succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, we talk to Jennifer trout a senior engineer at the American Institute of Steel Construction about equity in AEC industry. She expands on some of the challenges faced in an office environment and in the trades and how you can become more involved in the AEC industry. I'm your co-host, Alexis Clark. I work in Hilti's North American headquarters as the product manager of our chemical anchoring portfolio in the U.S. and Canada. I'm a licensed professional engineer in Texas. I received my bachelor's in civil engineering from UT Austin, and I'm currently an MBA candidate at Auburn. Before we introduce our guest, the Structural Engineering Channel is a free show, and our sponsors help keep it free, so we ask that you please support them. Now, I'd like to recognize one of our sponsors for this episode. Firstly, Global Software. Global Software offers the most powerful yet user-friendly structural analysis and design software for today's structural engineer. With the general FEA program, RFEM, venture beyond basic box type buildings and into unique multi-material structures instead. The nonlinear FEA program is based on a modular concept so you can create a tailored and affordable package specific to your design projects. The add-on modules include American, Canadian, and other international design standards for not only steel and concrete, but also aluminum, wood, cross-laminated timber, glass, tensile fabric, and cable form finding, dynamics, stability, and much more. The direct interfaces with BIM programs include Revit, Tecla Structures, and AutoCAD allow for the time-saving bi-directional exchange of information with RFEM. Also, Experience Global's recently released standalone program, RWIND, or RWIND, simulation, which simulates wind flow on all structure types and geometries within a numerical wind tunnel. Integrate wind pressures back to the RFEM structure for a complete structural design. For more information, visit www.dlubal.com or www.dlubal.com. I'd also like to recognize our other sponsor, Menard Group USA. Do you have projects where you're faced with building on soft or loose ground? Does it seem like all of the good sites are taken when you're always building on poor soils that are a challenge for conventional foundation approaches? Menard may be able to help. As a specialty ground improvement contractor, Menard works nationally and internationally, providing design-build ground improvement solutions at sites with problematic soils. Menard's techniques include controlled modulus columns, wick drains, earthquake drains, fibrostone columns, dynamic compaction, rapid impact compaction, and soil mixing. Typical projects include warehouses, buildings, material storage piles, processing areas, embankments, roadways, port facilities, storage tanks, containment structures, and platforms. In many cases, ground improvement is less costly than traditional approaches such as removal and replacement or piling systems. Menard works closely with civil, structural, and geotechnical engineers to minimize foundation costs for wide ranges of soil conditions, structure types, and loading conditions. To learn more about Menard Group USA or for help on your next project, please visit www.menardgroupusa.com. That's www.menardgroup, 
usa.com. And now I'd like to introduce our guest for this episode. Jennifer Trout Todaro, SE Lead AP, is a senior engineer for the American Institute of Steel Construction and is a licensed structural engineer in the state of Illinois. She earned her Bachelor of Science in Architectural Studies and Master of Architecture degree with a structural focus, both from the University of Illinois Urbana Champaign. After graduation, Jenny started her structural engineering career as a consulting design engineer, gathering experience for 11 years on small to mid rise projects around the U.S. Before joining AISC in 2014, she was a structural associate at the AE firm Harley Ellis Devereaux. She is serving her last term on the Structural Engineers Association of the Illinois Board of Directors and is involved with several committees. Her passions are elegant building design solutions, structural and architectural, and equity in the AEC industry. Now let's jump into our conversation with Jenny. Jenny, welcome to the Structural Engineering Podcast. Thank you for having me. We are really glad to have you on today, and we're excited to have you give our listeners a little bit of a scoop on the AEC industry. Before we dive into that, I'm curious, will you please share with our audience a little bit about your career journey and what it is you do now on a day-to-day basis at AISC? I have a little bit of a non-traditional route to structural engineering. I um, have a bachelor's and master's in architecture I always thought I wanted to be an architect. I do get to still work with buildings. I ended up switching directions when I went to my master's program. I was actually approached right before graduation by the department head in the structures option um, at University of Illinois, and he offered me $5 if I joined his department. And for some reason, I took him up on it, and now I'm a structural engineer. I actually see him on a regular basis through our, our committee work with AISC, so I remind him that he's the reason that I'm an engineer. And following university, I worked for several engineering firms and then some um, architectural engineering firms and now work for AISC in their Steel Solutions Center. The Steel Solutions Center focuses on technical and project assistance for the AEC industry. And I am one of the few people that gets to actually design still at AISC. So I take projects in their infancy that are brought into us um, and take a look and see what that would look like in steel and provide information back to architects, general contractors, fabricators, engineers, anybody who's interested in seeing what their project looks like at a conceptual level in steel and actually even bring in uh, some of our member fabricators to help them start budgeting what that might be. That's what I do for AISD now. At AISC, you kind of get to be in the schematic design phase where you get the overall big picture instead of taking design through, but you do get to come up with ideas to basically make the building or structure work, right? Correct. We use um, RAM structural systems and we'll take, typically we'll have some, maybe some architectural drawings, some sketches, and we'll design the building in the three-dimensional space that RAM provides and give them sizing and elevations and, and that sort of thing, just to get them off the ground and, again, push them in the right direction for steel, see if it's a viable option. For me, that's always one of the funner parts, kind of in that schematic design phase where you get to kind of play around with the concepts. So that's really cool to hear. Jenny, you're also a private tutor in topics such as uh, general structures, lateral forces, and statics and dynamics. 
and you know a lot more topics. How has this experience teaching uh, or tutoring helped advance your engineering career? I sort of started teaching when I was in grad school. Um, part of that five dollars was also the ability to be a teaching assistant. And I don't think I actually really understood concepts like moment inertia and that sort of thing until I had to teach it to somebody else. And so I've always found the teaching part to be incredibly valuable when it comes to technical, but also the people that you get to meet. The tutoring I was doing, um, and I don't do as much of it now, I've kind of changed the direction of what how I teach and where I teach as I've grown in my career. But the tutoring was for architects to take their structures exams. And coming from an architecture background, it seemed to be helpful for them to look at structures from an architect's perspective, as opposed to the way I think a lot of engineering programs look at it, which is a beam in a building. And the way that they approach that exam is more from the architect's perspective, but sometimes it's challenging for them to wrap their head around the number part of it. And there's a lot of success that I got to see with people having trouble passing it and then working with me and then passing, which was you know, kind of exciting for somebody who felt like they couldn't, they, this was the one exam that was holding them back to then get licensed because of it. It's really exciting. I got to work with people throughout the Chicago architecture community, which really unintentionally set up a network of architects that I am able to kind of reach out to for one reason or another. And I find that really rewarding. I appreciate that you bring both the human and the technical aspect of that. It's so critical to have connections and have a community and and not only for your own advancement within the industry, but also just to have a sense of belongingness and feel like you're a part of something bigger than just you and your technical skills. I think that's really important. So I appreciate that you brought that to us. I just thought it was cool how it's, you know, you're making yourself better, but you're also building a network in the professional industry too. I never thought of it that way. So that's really great. I ended up being asked to do a little session for the AIA Young Architects group. I was involved with them early on in my career, not realizing that there was a structural engineering version. So I was still stuck in that whole architect mindset, even though I'd gone through an engineering program and working as an engineer. And somebody at one of those events turned to me and was like, wait a minute, you could teach us for free. What do you think about that? And I was like, I will, we could, we could try it. I mean, I've been a TA, so I have some teaching experience and I ended up doing a session for them. And then somebody came up to me at the end and said, I'd really like to work with you one-on-one. And then that's how that whole tutoring thing started. It wasn't, it was very organic. It was, and then if I wanted to get some more students, I would actually just do another session. So it was like an hour and a half of my time and I get to meet more people and it was a lot of fun. Now, More recently, I actually taught at Northwestern, which was really fun too. It was definitely a different environment. It was more like that TA environment, but without a lead professor. So I love teaching. It's just a lot of fun. You have been in this like organic, informal tutoring situation where it's maybe one-on-one or it's, you know, more personal. And you've also been in this TA and, and I would say probably an associate or affiliate professor. I think they call them adjunct. And I don't think I'm a professor. I think I'm a lecturer. We still think it's incredible. I've never been a professor or lecturer. I don't want to claim anything because those titles mean something. My mom's actually a professor. And so I think that she'd be happy if I were very clear in my title. So my question is, you've been in these two different sides and you have this passion for teaching. Do you find one feels more comfortable? Do you find one stretches you more? Do you get 
more out of one versus the other? Are there pros or cons? I, I'm really curious to know how you feel about that because I also enjoy teaching, but mine's always been very informal. I'm just curious what your thoughts are. My comfort zone is smaller groups. The one-on-one is really fun for me. It's hard in, in the sense that sometimes you have to explain something in like four different ways for someone else to understand it, but that's fun for me. I'm not a fan of large public speaking and it does stretch me in that way that I have to kind of think about how I can try to accommodate everybody's understanding and answer questions. Answering questions is almost like one-on-one, even if I'm in front of a group though, because then I can kind of direct, directly solve someone's concern. But I definitely enjoyed the tutoring more, but the large group was presented and I was at the time actually looking to kind of bolster my public speaking abilities. So that part helped. I understand that you work in a large team and that this can often lead to many different challenges, right? Can you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges you get to face in the office environment that you work in and what it is that you do to overcome those challenges? I definitely think that large groups, like I said, my comfort zone is smaller. So I do what I can to break it down. Even though my company is close to 100 and we have this network of members that we reach out to on a regular basis. But breaking it down into those smaller work groups really seems to help me. I work in a team of three in the solution center, but we're inside of the engineering department, which is then, you know, wrapped in AISC. And then we work a lot with our committees, which is all volunteer. For me, breaking the problems down into smaller problems and breaking the groups down into smaller work groups, we all get to know each other better. And I think we work together better. But that the fact that we're working with that many people, there, there's always more opinions, more stakeholders, more personal agendas. And so I was lucky enough to do a leadership training a couple of years ago that really helped me kind of reframe how to work with others. Um, I'm still definitely working on how to actually implement that because it, it's a mindset and you're constantly working on that mindset. But understanding that where people are coming from and meet them where they're at, as opposed to assuming that people are just going to meet you where where you're at is a lot more effective in uh, moving something forward. I think that's one of the challenges. Many There's several challenges working large group. I think another one that we that we're even more challenged with now that we're not physically in an office together is communication and making sure that we're keeping people updated specifically. And then how we communicate and making sure that that is coming across in a way that is respectful and but still getting the job done. I have a tendency to be direct and I don't mean to be impolite, but I'm an engineer. So I have a tendency to just say like, this is what I need. And then like send, and that's not the way that most people respond, especially I feel like AISD, when I started working there, I couldn't believe how it's a different work environment than consulting for sure, because consulting is, I feel like I was you know, always inevitably getting a phone call from a contractor. I have the concrete truck here right now. I am pouring right now. You need to solve this problem that has just arisen. We didn't notice until we had the truck. And I'm like, okay, of course, you know, how much of that is true, but it's always this go, go, go. I need the answer right now. And you're always kind of on a fire drill, backpedaling sort of feeling. But with AISC, because we're creating the manual and the specification, code standard practice, and a lot of these documents that lead our industry, it has to be a lot more thoughtful. Um, we want to get it right. And so people are a little bit less stressed. We are able to plan. There's not as much 
this sort of thing just happens. We got to figure it out. Like that happens. That happens in every job. But it's there's more planning allowed for in this kind of work. People are less stressed, and I would venture to say like appear happier because they're already in a good mood. Like I have to think about like they're not in the go go go. I'm still kind of in that, even though six years later that was definitely a transition when I first started. I was like, there's no timesheet. What do I do without a timesheet? They just like check a box at the door saying like we've arrived. So they'd make sure that we checked in that day. We don't have that. Even before COVID, we didn't, we stopped kind of reporting our attendance essentially. That's definitely a different mindset and, and realizing that we have a little bit of time to put in that extra smiley face and, and that sort of thing. Who are the types of, uh, people that you work with, you mentioned owners, engineers, obviously, but do you also work with the contractors, trades, tradespeople, et cetera? What's the the range of people that you work with? I didn't really understand who AISC was, honestly, before I started interviewing with them. To me, AISC was the manual and that's what they produced. Like they probably also did a bunch of other stuff, but to me as an engineer, they were the producer of like the standards that I used for steel. Well, it turns out it's not just the standards. They also work with certification, which I also kind of peripherally understood, which is the uh, increased quality control system for the fabrication of steel. So you have all the steel manufacturers in the United States are held to a certain standard by our documentation at AISD. But if they choose to, they can also become certified, which There's a lot of other benefits that come along with that for the certified company, but also the people who hire them. So you might be able to avoid certain inspections because they've already promised a certain level of quality in the shop and on site. There's a whole group that administrates our certification audits and and that. We also have a group, I originally was in actually market development and I've moved more into engineering now, but we have a market development group that is out there to be the face of steel for anybody who needs that one-on-one. So they very much emphasize that face-to-face, you, you know, have a face to talk to. If you have a question, you know who you can call. You can call your local specialist or you can call the Solution Center. And we have people who work on our conference. So there are, none of those people are technical. They're all super patient with us engineers because we have a certain personality type and they're all about making the best experience for everybody, which is great because if we had engineers doing that, I don't think we'd have as good of a time at our conference. We probably have, and then this is just a guess, it's not the actual numbers, but I feel like we're half administrative and half engineers. So we have engineers in every department. We'll have engineers in the marketing department. We have engineers, obviously, in engineering. We have engineers in our certification department. We have engineers in our education group who provides education, continuing education for practicing engineers. But we also have a group that reaches out to university level students and professors and supports them. So that's a very long answer to your question about who I work with. It's a different balance than a consulting firm because we have a lot of administrative staff that support the work that we do. It's a varied group. I mean, you've got so many different backgrounds. You were mentioning all these roles and I was like clicking check, check, check as far as all the different people that I get to work with at Hilti. I've been on the engineering in continuing education standpoint. That was the last role that I did was delivering you know, education for structural engineers. So I understand what that group goes through. I'm, I'm currently an engineer in marketing and it is 
I work with engineers who are in your position where they're an engineer in marketing, but they're doing engineering work. You're actually designing things. You're actually helping individual project works. Actually, I'm a little bit surprised how similar Hilti and, and AISC are, but it is a huge machine. And I know that I speak to people all the time and I say, oh, I work at Hilti. Or, you know, if you, if you say I work at AISC, they say, okay, great. You produce, and they're used to that book, that technical manual. Oh yeah, you're the one who creates the product tech guides that I use that are on my desk. Or I, yeah, you create the steel Bible. It's so funny to kind of open people's eyes to all the different aspects that make these large groups that are providing more than just technical data available to you. And it's, it's funny because I think Matt, actually, I would appreciate your insight here. You know, if you share all these different aspects of what your company does as a larger industry, multidisciplinary manufacturer or industry organization to the consulting engineer, if I mentioned all those things, you'd probably go, oh yeah, I've heard of that, but it's hard to get out of the idea of, well, I rely on you for technical information. Yeah, exactly. It's um, kind of what Jenny was saying too, is I've pretty much been working in the consulting industry. AISC, I think of the Steel Bible. So it's, for me, it's really interesting to see, because I know it's a big organization. It's like, what else do they do? (laughs) And there's so many resources out there. So it's really cool to see that firms such as AISC, they're really like multifaceted in terms of what they provide. And, And it's not just for the engineers, but they do so much in terms of, you know, you do need to talk to different types of people. That's why I'm always curious about that. It's like, I know you guys do this, but what else do you do? And then when the doors open, it's like, oh, that's, that's a lot of stuff. Yeah, a lot of resources. And NASCC has tracks for erectors and contractors and fabricators and installers. They have a pretty wide range of people that you guys interact with. Yeah, actually, I was going to, I realized at the end of what I was saying that I had not really addressed the outside people. We have our little AISC planet. But we're really there to serve the industry. And the industry is, we serve it the mill out to the end users. So we have different kinds of memberships, which is one of the things I did not understand before. But AISC is highly funded by the people who make steel. You get a manual because the fabricators and mills want you to be able to design with their product. So AISC is one of our functions is to help facilitate that. So I thought that AISC wrote the manual, for instance. Well, we don't. Actually, we just kind of guide it and make sure it happens. But we have huge groups of volunteers from the industry that, are, again, are from that mill, fabricator, erectors, design engineers, educators, researchers, all these people all come together on a, depending on which committee it is, mostly at least twice a year, usually more often than that, to look at our documents and make sure that they're current with new research or just make sure that they are saying what they need to say. And in some cases, actually, we have people, even this week, I got an an email that said, I think there's a conflict between what's being said in the specification and what's being said in your commentary. Like, is that, am I reading that right? And they were right. We're giving that to the committee that that kind of shepherds that part of our documents, and they're going to review it and figure out how to change the language to make it more legible, more understandable for um, the end users. And the role that I do with the design work, I do get to work with the owners, the architects, the engineers, the fabricators sometimes will come in and say, I've been asked to take a look at this project. It's actually drawn in concrete. And I've been asked to give a budget on a concrete project that they wanted to go steal. (laughs) And I'd like it to go steal. What does that look like? And so that's one of the things where I take that and I design it in steel. So they have a more educated budget number so that they might actually be able to flip it to the right material in that, you know, in that case. 
the way we work with each of those different groups is is interesting too because some of those fabricators don't even realize we offer this kind of service where we can do a complementary conceptual solution for them. And I'll meet them in the committee environment and they'll ask what I do. And I tell them and they're like, wait, you guys do that? It's like the best kept secret because, you know, I've been doing it for six years, but it's been going on for significantly longer. And we want to get that the steel idea on the market. We're interested in talking to anybody and everybody about, you know, seeing what steel looks like in their projects and, and how it can function better for them. I want to give a quick plug to our audience really quick. So I know in some of our more recent episodes, if you've listened to those, um, we've talked a lot about, you know, how do you utilize a little bit of business knowledge to make yourself better in your career? What is an opportunity mixing structural engineering with computer programming work like? If you're an engineer, young or tenured, who is very interested in always being technical, you don't necessarily want to go into business. But as we mentioned, there are some things you can take from other aspects of work to make yourself better. But being involved in these committees that Jenny just mentioned is such an amazing opportunity. You really get to see how the entire machine works and how these codes and these provisions are developed. If you are designing in concrete audience members, ACI, the American Concrete Institute, has a very similar setup where there are committees that develop these provisions and they continuously need to make sure that they are in tune with the market and with the industry and with the available technology that we have. So if you are passionate about a specific part of the code, which sounds super nerdy, but we all know that we have a section that we really like or a chapter, it's cool. So we're all friends here. If there's something you're really passionate about from a technical aspect, even if you are very young and even if you don't have your PE license, those committees will eventually need new members. And they would love to have you listen in and shadow and see how the process works so that by the time you do have your PE, by the time you do have some tenure under your belt, you can contribute to those committees. So if you have any interest in going in that direction, you should absolutely be reaching out to ACI or AISC. They can get you into the right committee to where you can start learning and then eventually be able to contribute to that committee as a committee member or even lead the committee later in your career. So if technical is the way you know you want to go, great way to develop your technical network and contribute back to the industry. Thank you for saying that because that's actually one of the pushes that we've recently been addressing because I've worked as a secretary on those committees, which that's who the AISD staff person is. We're interfacing with that group. We're the secretary. So we're making sure that all the notes are being taken and being brought back to AISD to integrate into any new documentation. As the, that staff person seeing our committee group, we often, and this happens in every committee, it's not AISD, it's, it's any, and it's in business, we ask people to join who look like us. So when we're thinking of who we, if we even think of it, which is also the thing we'd like to push, you know, people who are already involved, where's that junior person that you could bring with you? Because we have room for guests. We have a setup to allow for that. So you're not going to be able to vote, but you probably don't want to vote yet anyway. So when you're sitting there, you're like, oh my gosh, these people know so much more than me. Like, I mean, as a secretary, I was like, I don't think I should be doing this. They've been working on this items forever. Like they know the material of steel back and forth and I'll never understand how much they understand. They have PhDs in it, but being there and breathing it in and, and understanding how that all works. And then they all get together at lunch and they're all buddy, buddy. And then they'll go back to these super technical discussions. And, and I didn't know that even existed before working at AISC. Like I said before, I've been very involved with other professional organizations, but they're not necessarily technical based. They're almost more networking, must have a good time 
and also learn something. But that idea of asking questions and, and hopefully there's somebody at your company that's involved already because it's good to have that mentor to bring you in because then they can kind of sit there and say, this is what we're talking about right now. This has been in the discussion since whenever. And uh, a very big one is the ASD versus LRFD and where those belong, right? So that came up in the last committee meetings I was at, which was like a couple of committee meetings back. But like this was a big deal. And my first deal manual was LRFD strictly only LRFD. And so I didn't realize this huge like schism essentially until I started working. And then they said, well, we're not going to look at your work unless it's ASD. And I had to go do ASD anyways. I encourage anybody and everybody who's interested in, like you said, doesn't have to be steel. It could be concrete. It could be code work. So ASCE, any of these groups, they're going to need a younger set of people to join. And I mean, not going to, we need it now because that diverse perspective and the question asking really gets us to a better spot. I'm glad you mentioned it because that's actually something that me and a few other people at AISD kind of brought up is like, we really need to make this happen. We need to make space on our committees to bring in those younger people. And so this last round actually was a big, we made a lot of people emeritus, which keeps all of that knowledge, but creates space for those new people. And on the committee that I was on specifically, I was super excited. If there were competition for gender diversity, mine got mine won because we brought three women onto ours that I was like, and I didn't have a whole lot to do with it, but I was like, if it was a competition, I won. You were saying they have PhDs and people that know a lot, which is great. But then you have engineers complaining about, hey, I can't read the code or why is this thing so confusing? Well, you weren't there to, to help it, to get that other perspective because yeah, these PhDs know, they obviously know a lot. They're fluent in another language almost, a technical language. From a designer perspective or from any other perspective, it's good that you don't know it because now you can kind of get that perspective of, hey, why is this so confusing? Is this what you guys mean? Then, you know, you can have your two cents, especially if you're a consultant or another position, it could use that perspective too. Could you talk about some of the challenges in the trades? Something that also has kind of come up because I've worked for AISD, something that I probably wouldn't have had access to before was to actually hear from the fabricators. And then beyond that is women in the trades, um, minorities in the trades, which is, it's all very interesting to really get hammered home because for me anyways, and you've probably seen articles here and there about the trades, the skilled trade shortage that we're in and what they're forecasting is crazy. We'll be needing so many people. The average age of our current skilled tradespeople are in their 50s. That's the number is like 55 or something. And how is that sustainable? Even with the committee work, I said, you know, we hire people who look like us. The trades have been trying to hire people who look like them, and they're not interested anymore. But they're really well-paid jobs. They're secure, and they're skilled, so they're well-paid. And so there's been a huge push from a lot of different groups trying to increase the diversity of the people in the trades and make those opportunities available to everybody. I don't know how you guys went in your high schools, but my high school shop was turned into an area for our, our janitorial staff. It was not some place where you got to work on cars or build anything. It was actually prohibited for students to get over there, right? So our high schools have made it 
impossible to get that kind of training in a regular high school environment like it used to. And we're seeing the results as it stands now. We have people that are going to college and then they're not getting the job they think they should be getting. They're having these huge debts and they're not able to pay them off because they don't get the job that pays that off. There's so many different avenues for successful careers and the trades is one of those ways that you actually, a lot of the trades, they pay you. They're paid internship. They're you getting paid through the process of learning. And then you come out without debt. There's a lot of really big conversations going on about this. AWS has been doing um, some really great work. The American Welding Society, they're really interested in increasing that diversity. And, and they came to speak two years ago at NASCC with me. I, had a, I held a panel with a woman who teaches underemployed or unemployed women to weld and then helps them get jobs. So she came and spoke. There was another woman from the West Coast that runs a welding school on the West Coast. And she's a huge proponent of getting women into the workforce and uh, increasing diversity. They're so interesting to see all these different people and how they're, they're really engaging that need. Because there's a lot of people that really need better jobs. They feel like they're stuck and they feel like they don't have something to move forward with that can really be sustainable. It's really interesting, this kind of world I've opened up. There's a woman named Vicki O'Leary who um, is working with Ironworkers International. She's an ironworker herself. She's a, an amazing story. Uh, she became an ironworker because her brother was going to go test to become an ironworker. And he told her she couldn't do it. And she said, I bet I could. And she did. That's my kind of girl. Yeah, exactly. She's amazing. She actually received the ENR Top Newsmaker Award two years ago now, I think. For her work getting, she got women iron workers in the union maternity leave recently, which I called her, and this is that networking thing that I just can't believe the kind of network that I've been able to reach out to. Someone said, you know, you should talk to this woman. And she picked up the phone and she talked to me for over an hour about all the different work she's doing with Iron Workers International. So she got maternity leave for women, which is huge because actually that's one thing that we need to do better is support women in the trades because it's you're making decision between working and having a family that like, what year is this? Where are we? Um, if we have to make those decisions. And so it's really cool that Ironworkers has kind of come through with that. And then she's also started a new initiative called Be That One Guy. And essentially there's um, an issue with harassment on the job site. And it's not just against women and it's not just against minorities. The way she describes it, it's a safety issue and it happens. There's always that one guy on the site who just is making things a little bit more difficult than they need to be. We don't need to be rude. We don't need to do those sort of things, but that's how environment he grew up in the industry and, and he's just continuing it, right? Initiative that she created is a training to help people feel empowered to just say, knock it off. We don't want that here. It's not something we want to have on our site. We're all in this together. We're working on a team and that attitude isn't appropriate. But if they can say it at the time, just knock it off, then all of a sudden this person, and she calls them like the one bad apple. She's like, we are a family here at Ironworkers. And that's, it's really interesting. If you look her up and see her talk, she talks about how everyone is incredibly supportive. And there's just sometimes that one person on site who's making it difficult for others. And that's, and that can be the person that, that makes somebody quit because they just don't want to deal with it anymore. This is this kind of world that I wasn't, really privy to as a consulting engineer because I so far removed from the people actually building 
you know, I work with GCs all the time. I go on site, but how often would I sit there and talk to the person that's actually welding? Never. That's something that's been really um, of interest to me. And I've been trying to keep it in our conference, something we're always talking about, um, because the skilled trade shortage and this need for new blood, like we're missing this huge group of people out in the U.S. that are ready to take those types of positions if we were to remember that they're there. There's a lot of work going on around that, but I there can always be more and more exposure is we can just talk about it more. We just keep talking about it and talking about it. And I, I try to bring it back. I agree with your root cause analysis that says that this, a lot of this stems from our high school systems and the fact that the U.S. for so long has said we are a services industry, we are a services, a nation of services. So we go into college formats and whether or not students are ready for that, whether or not they have the desire to, or even the learning style that really matches our university system, we do a great disservice to our students. And one of the biggest disservices, like you mentioned, is we don't do a good job of explaining what the full breadth of options are and then the financial gain and cost of doing those. A university degree versus getting paid internship from being in a plumber or a mechanic or you know in any kind of position where you're in a trade that are incredibly lucrative and get you started in building your own personal wealth at 18 years old. My brother-in-law is actually considering that right now. And he's, you know, 21 and I'm like, yes, please go do that. That's such a great opportunity. I actually, I got chills when you mentioned Vicky's name. Vicky was one of the starters of hard-hatted woman. Have you heard? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So you start talking about the trades and welding and all of the different issues that women face in the trades on the job site. And you mentioned a couple, I mean, maternity leave is leaps and bounds from where we were, but even today there are job sites where there aren't restroom facilities that are fully closed or enclosed or covered. And, you know, women will not use that on a job site full of guys. And it's fascinating. I could also dive into this conversation because I am invigorated by the Renaissance that the trades are having, but it is not an inclusive or safe place for women, which means it's not an inclusive and safe place for everyone. And when we make things better to incorporate the entire workforce that we could be bringing into the trades and having skilled labor, we really do raise the standard and the level of safety for everybody on the job site. So I am super passionate about this. I believe that Hard-Headed Woman comes out in 2021. It's supposed to premiere at Sundance then. Listeners, keep tabs on that. It is a fantastically interesting documentary on women in the trades. And iron workers are a large portion of who they spend focus on. So if you're a steel engineer, this could be a very interesting topic for you. What are some emerging initiatives that you're seeing in the AEC industry that have caught your attention? Obviously, this is an attention grabber. Anything else that you want to share with us there? Well, I just recently, again, this is like through a coworker of mine, they had gotten an email that was local to them. So they're in North Carolina and there was this group called She Built This City. And people think like at AISC, if I have coworkers, they are usually like, oh, this thing's going on. It's involving women. You should probably, because <laughs> I'm a little vocal about it at the office. So he was like, there's things going on. I couldn't attend. So I just sent the organizer an email and I said, I'm so sorry. I couldn't see, I didn't get to watch your webinar on what you guys are up to. So it turns out we had another meeting and she brought in their intern. It's a nonprofit that, and the intern is, I think she's going into mechanical, like um, HVAC and not engineering. She's in the trades. She's starting that process. So that's her, in, that's, that's the group's intern. And so she had to sit there and listen to us chat. And I did what I sort of do with the geeking out on, on what we can do and what we should do. And so this group was started by a woman in the trades who 
is, you know, seeing the issues we're seeing. And she wants to go earlier than high school. They are a brand new organization that is focusing on girls and getting tools in girls' hands and having them just understand what they are. I was on Facebook the other day and I saw there's another group that's similar. I think it's Tools and Tiaras possibly. And there's these groups that are going out and they're making sure that girls feel comfortable with tools. And like I grew up and it was funny. Um, my dad actually passed away a couple like last year and my brother's like, I just got to hold the flashlight. And I was not the person that held the flashlight. I got to do all the work. So my dad must have trusted me. <laughs> but um, and so I'm like, oh, you got to hold the flashlight. That's it. Like whatever he did work around the house. I was in there using every tool. I know what they are. I know what the names are, all that stuff. And I do home improvement stuff constantly. And I was like, this is great because they're right. You know, if your girls are excluded from those kinds of, um, if they, even if they, they probably don't get to even hold the flashlight. They don't get to see what's going on with keeping up a house, you know, working on a car, any of those things. Those things are all just kind of, those are opportunities that aren't happening. So this group is really focusing on, on young girls. And because of COVID, this, I thought this was amazing. Because of COVID, they'd had all these summer camps set up, but they weren't able to do them. They took all the funding that they'd received and bought an Airstream and outfitted it so they could actually remotely go and have outdoor events and like kind of one session events as opposed to the camps that they were that had been planning locally. That's amazing. And they named it POW. And it was like, and it's this big, you know, there's a lot of traction there. And it's like, that's just, it's fun. And it's like the, you know, girls who code kind of idea. Um, but for me, physical stuff has always been more interesting. You know, you push like this why structural engineering is something I like. You push on a wall, it pushes back. That's why it doesn't fall down and that sort of thing. So that's been really interesting to hear about. And they have two focuses. Their original focus was on the young girls, but they also want to support women currently working. And so they have a women at work advisory council that I'm starting to get involved with as one of the structural engineers. We just had a meeting last week, I think, where I got to see all these women across the country who are all like CEOs of different, of an aluminum manufacturer. And then there was a woman, like all these people with all these C-suite names. And I was like, what am I doing here? But it's so cool to see everyone getting behind this idea and supporting it. So, um, and sometimes I'm wondering like, well, this should be one effort because then we're, we're too splintered. But at the same time, getting involved locally is really, it's where you start. And this group really wants to go national and they're going to be working with um, the National Women in Construction group. So they're brand new. They're working on really amazing things. It's exciting, uh, especially when you're kind of stuck at home and you're like, well, we'll never go back to the office and all that stuff to see this sort of thing happening is, is exciting. And being a part of it is even more. Especially with the trades, there is that whole other workforce and obviously mostly male dominated. But once you get these people in it, I think it just really opens up a new door for the next generation because, you know, I'm opening up like the, the steel magazine and I see women welders and that's already imprinted in my mind, but think of what it's doing for the next generation. I just think that's what's so cool about it is because, yeah, you are taking away that stereotype or you're making a new stereotype of seeing what the industry is. It's not just men, but a whole group of, of women leaders. My last question is a career related for anyone that wants to kind of follow in your career path. So you're working in you know, the consulting industry, 
how did you get into kind of this position? I don't even know what you would call it. I guess what would you describe it? If someone wanted to kind of get in your position, maybe work for the AISC industry, would they just Google something like where is it the Solutions Center? Because it, it does seem like a cool career, like uh, what you do. So if someone wanted to go on that career path, how would they get into it? Do they need to get in touch with the organizations or do you have any advice for someone that wants to go in that career path? I think that maybe we could group it as sort of non-traditional engineering roles and Hilti also offers. There's a lot of companies that really harness the engineering education that you have in school, but also working. Looking for non-traditional roles is challenging. I wasn't necessarily looking for this. I was actually, when I moved here to AISD, I also interviewed at more consulting positions and I had just had my first child and I was weighing whether I needed, I wanted to like leave. And it felt like at the time it felt like leaving. It's really not leaving um, at all because I'm actually more connected now than I probably was as a consultant to our industry. But this position came up for me because we were actually in the same building and I was already friends with people at AISC because AISC is a Chicago based company. I was already in Chicago, but I do know that there are recruiters that specifically work on non-traditional roles. They actually, I've I've worked with them. I've spoken with them before at previous times when I was looking to kind of make a change and nothing really came up at the time. But then it was funny when I took the job at AISC, Brian Quinn called me and said, you got that job that I was probably going to call you about. (laughs) The answer for kind of keeping an eye open for that, if you think maybe consulting isn't where you want to be, the people who you talk to to support you are also engineers. Hayward Baker is uh, a firm in Chicago that does a lot of deep foundation, all these different kinds of foundations, but they have a marketing group that has to be smart about what they're talking about so they can talk to engineers. There's a lot of company dynamics that I probably didn't understand coming out of school because that wasn't a part of our education. Thinking about the companies that you work with on a regular basis as a consulting engineer and realize that those people also have that engineering background. That's why they can talk to you the way they they can support you that way, technically. And maybe that might be a different environment for you. And some of them are more remote. We have like the marketing staff we have around the country. They all work from their cities. Well, we don't get to see them in person very much anymore with COVID, but we typically see them throughout the year. But they're on their own, kind of coming up with their own way to talk about steel. This is just specific to what we work with here. And they get to use their engineering expertise to support people. And then if they need more help, then they reach back out to us. I think there's a lot of support roles. I think that I didn't realize it at the time. Sometimes there's opportunities where you might not even know it. And, you know, like you said, people that are helping you, they have that technical background too. And that's great advice. You know, keep a lookout because there's non-traditional roles that are out there, but you know, you just don't see them as often and they could be right under your nose. So thanks for that. One more plug. I actually, fabricators often have staff engineers, which you might not realize. Some of the bigger companies have really developed engineering departments because they have to figure out how to build your stuff if your stuff isn't drawn well. (laughs) So they're spending a lot of time engineering connections specifically, or sometimes those are some contracted out, but the larger firms have really sophisticated, like some of those PhDs I was telling you about in the committees, those are people who work for fabricators. It was a whole different view that I got when I started working for AISC and meeting these people. 
it's just like, it's incredibly impressive to know that's who's guiding the industry. I think it's amazing. You've given us such a well-rounded view of what really the the breadth of of engineering in the steel industry. And I am very, very thankful for that. I definitely have my eyes opened and I think you've shared some fantastic insights with us in, in a variety of different ways. So thank you so much, Jenny, for coming on the show with us. Where can our listeners connect with you or follow you or hear more of your amazing insights? Probably the best place is LinkedIn. Twitter is my professional account, but I'm I'm not particularly active right now because I don't get to go on job sites and do fun pictures and stuff. Yeah, I think LinkedIn is probably the best. Again, thank you for coming on with us and thank you for spending the time to educate us all. Thank you. Before we finish up here, I would like to recognize our sponsors for this episode. First up, Aero Aggregates of North America. Aero Aggregates is the first vertically integrated manufacturer of ultra-lightweight foamed glass aggregate in North America made from 100% recycled glass. This sustainable aggregate has bulk densities that are 80 to 90% lower than traditional fill, is free-draining and non-reactive, and has a high friction angle. If your project site is challenged by resiliency concerns, raising grades over soft soils, sensitive utilities or structures, or the need to reduce lateral loads, foamed glass aggregate can often accelerate construction, reduce project costs, and offer green credits for LEED and Envision programs. Visit www.aeroaggregates.com to learn more about this unique construction material. That's www.aeroaggates.com. I would also like to recognize our sponsor, SkySiv. SkySiv offers a range of powerful, easy-to-use structural analysis and design software that is 100% on the cloud. A core focus of SkySiv is their structural analysis and design API, which lets engineers access all of SkySiv's technology directly. Build your own tools and software around the SkySiv functions to design faster and easier. Being entirely on the cloud, the SkySiv API can run from any device, meaning no installation or licensing issues. The SkySiv API lets you directly access features such as model generation, structural analysis, member design, concrete design, wind load calculations, and much more from any of your own programs or tools. With just a few lines of code, you can easily automate parts of your design workflow. Are you an innovative engineer looking to improve your team's efficiency or automate repetitive design tasks? If so, SkySiv API can give your team the tools. Get started today at www.skysiv, that's S-K-Y-C-I-V.com backslash E-M-I. We hope you've enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and questions. To leave them, please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There, you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, which is episode number 37, as well as any of the links to the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune into your podcasts. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors. The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. 
for information on EMI's People and Project Management Skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.